Hello and welcome to the Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Yes, hello, welcome back to episode 9 of the Better Business Show. Uh, a slight shake-up in format for this week. We're very much on location. I'm here in, uh, in Docklands, in the heart of East London. I'm at Excel Centre, which is, a, for anyone that doesn't know, it's a big exhibition centre here in London. And I'm here for Resource, the Resource event, uh, which uh, happens every year around this sort of time. And it's basically one of the biggest events uh, in Europe, for companies thinking about resources and thinking about waste and thinking about uh, the circular economy, which again we've we've touched on in the show in the in the last few weeks. Um, so I'm here. I'm I'm here to to check out what people are saying, what people are talking about, and hopefully we'll meet as many different companies and innovators as as we can uh, during my time here. So let's let's go in and find out what's going on. So let me set the scene for you. I'm inside this huge cavernous uh, exhibition centre, as you'd imagine. Um, 11,000 visitors are set to be passing through here in the next three days. Uh, it's a co-located show, so you've got resource and you've got eco-build. Um, so yeah, lots of people wandering around, lots of people in suits, lots of men in suits, uh, with the odd sort of splash of colour. You often get the, the architects and the, the kind of design community and their hipster beards uh, and their smart socks, uh, but largely it's 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 white men in suits not many women as you'd imagine so it's basically one big networking uh, event frankly uh, with lots of people here to, to meet others to do business as you'd imagine uh, but also to learn there's lots of seminar theaters here with um, presentations panel discussions going on so plenty of that going on uh, but I really want to meet some of the people that are disrupting business and uh, we want to meet a collective of better businesses so that's what I'm going to do uh, over the next hour or so. Okay, delighted to be joined by Sophie Thomas, uh, co-founder of The Great Recovery Project. Sophie, how are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. I'm at Resource and it's uh it's kind of loud and busy and full of lots of people who've been working on circular economy for a while and catching up on people. So, Good, good. And so four years down the line since you launched uh, The Great Recovery, for those that are not in the know, can you explain what it is you've been doing? Yes, yeah, so um, through the RSA and with Innovate UK support, we've been running an investigation programme looking at the role of design within circular economy. So how do we design products better? How do you take a business from something where your profit sits in a unit cost to something which is about servitization and leasing. Um, also looking at longevity, looking at uh, different processes and design methodology and bringing those to the table about investigating, lifting the lid on how we're currently doing things and how we should be doing things for keeping value into our in our systems. Right, and, and four years ago people weren't talking about the circular economy at all, were they? No, they weren't. They were talking about resource efficiency um, and what was interesting is when, when uh, actually the project, I should talk a bit about where the project came from because um, I went on a, a mission, you know, a UKTI mission uh, in back in the, um, 20, 2010, um, 2010, yeah, 2010, and um, uh, I was at a fridge recovery facility in the Netherlands and watching these guys who were using really great technology about taking all these European fridges, taking them apart, getting all the value and the materials back 
and reprocessing it. And half of the half of the facility was really high tech. Half of it was very much about these guys taking out all the valuable bits. And I was watching particular guy trying to get the compressor out the back of a fridge, really struggling, didn't know what to do. Every time a fridge came, he had to use different screwdrivers, different bits of tech to get it out. And I was thinking, what we should do is line up all the fridge designers behind him and say, look at the, like, look how hard you're making this guy's job to get the value back out of that fridge, because you're not thinking about the end of life of that product, you're not thinking about the second and third use of that product, you're just designing it on a, purely on a focus of like, the, you know, an efficient, ease of manufacturing fridge products and um, as soon as we started to think like that and we built the project around this process of like getting designers at end of life doing a tear down process with lots of things from you know lipsticks and razors all the way up to oil rigs which is what we've currently done and everything in the middle um, and we really noticed that things aren't we don't design for circularity nothing is circular ready as I say and um, so it's a case of, for us, to take, we took loads of different businesses, resource managers, uh, chemists, designers, all these different people, policy makers, all to these places of end of life, looked at the problems, got gained insight from those processes, those guys who were trying to take stuff apart to get the value out, and said, actually, there's a real business opportunity around this, because it's about efficiency, and it's about uh, getting your materials back into your process. If you know, if you're trying to future-proof your business, and you're looking 10, 15, 20 years down the line, and you're seeing a hike in your raw material price, eating into your profit margin, there's your incentive. Yeah. And, you know, things are changing. Technology is, is moving so quickly we're getting uh, obsolescence in our products so much faster that can, surely there's a business opportunity in that too so actually how are we getting our stuff back from, from our users to say actually we'll have it back because we can use that component and b build it back into another product that's better or we'll lease uh, a structure for you or like um, a service for you which actually is about not about giving you a product but about selling you the thing that the product is doing yeah. and therefore you're gaining you're keeping hold of your raw materials in a better way so we're starting to see a few examples of companies start to do that and think differently and and uh, you know shift business models a few of them are on stage during this show for the yeah. three days I'm sure um, but it's not really mainstream has it what, what, the, what are the sort of things that are holding this back why are these refrigeration companies designing things differently why aren't we seeing that yet I mean god you have to remember that this is an economic system and we are in a global mass global consumer economy um, where we have companies who have had very good case studies done on looking at new circular systems for their products but that could actually chop out half their supply chain yeah. and they're you know you know they don't want to do that that that, that kind of disruption is very uh, you know business are very scared of rightly so because it's a, you know it's a big shift yeah. so we've got to be a bit realistic about how long it's going to take yeah. um, I think what we're seeing now is a lot of in still gaining traction we're seeing more traction in the um, and discussion happening in things like the construction industry which as a sector has been very focused on carbon and sustainability and energy efficiency in buildings but not necessarily about the materiality efficiency so that's a really exciting thing um, the other thing is I mean you know we've seen four years of competitions going through Innovate UK which we've been supporting lots of really interesting stuff going on there still at phases where it's not commercialized yet it will be I mean, 
this it just will take quite a long time. So we're at the, we're at the very start of this, aren't we? Really, we are at the very start of it, and that's what's exciting for us because actually we know that we can uh, we need to get lessons and part of our focus has been getting businesses to understand the lessons learned at end of life now so what's the best case scenario for our stuff now is about going to recycling facilities talking to demolition contractors etc to get that ins gain that insight and get it back into the design of our products it's also about really focusing on the design chain which is about the manufacturers it's about the clients who are writing the design brief getting them to even think about writing in this product or this you know this this design has to be uh, about second and third life of the you you know what do the what does that third generation user look like is it a cascade model is it um, a longevity is it about adaptability etc um, so all of those things need to be kind of pulled together that's what we've been doing kind of trying to convene those conversations and hopefully just sort of getting you know those light bulb moments happening across this across the whole of that network and then you will see shift but what we desperately need in this country is um, top level convening and commitment from EU from national government level and what would that look like that will look like uh, continued competition support from, from Biz and from Innovate UK. It will be about procurement changes at uh, national and local levels, government levels. It will be proper commitment to the, um, you know, the circular economy package, all of these things. And actually, real understanding of what kind of investment has to happen on that level in order for it to drip down into creating spaces, whether they're virtual mental or physical safe fail or we call them spaces where businesses can come and test and take and the risk isn't there for, for businesses because if you think about the UK we have a huge amount of uh, growing SMEs uh, innovating around in circular particularly in circularity you know it's building and building and um, you know they haven't got the resource to be able to properly put into testing in that in that level so actually how can we support that how can businesses big businesses get uh, put proper R&D uh, investment into circular systems you know we put you can imagine that some products that we looked at in uh, you know consumer products have behind them five years of R&D development yeah, in the design yeah, yeah. Imagine if you had that investment put into the end of life of that product as well. So you've looked at lots and lots of products. You've taken them apart, haven't you, in some of your workshops. Uh, what are the horror stories that you see now and again of, of products that are just so badly designed? <laughs> what, what sort of examples? Well, well, how long have you got? <laughs> Um, I think what's really fascinating is that when you t uh, there's a lots of things that you think should have uh, longer lives that don't. So a lot of electronics, for instance, you would take apart an electronic thing, which already by the nature of what it did uh, was already obsolete because of the technology. You know, technology is really high-tech uh, evolution is happening so quickly at the moment. So not only would you take it apart and say, well, this, you know, things like uh, sat-nav systems. For instance, now, you know, when you go to an e-waste facility, you're seeing a lot of those systems come through, partly because we all use our phones for navigation, which is the technological innovation that's happened. You know, apps have completely revolutionised the kind of way we, um, we use it. So our phone has become this kind of 
modus operandi for so much stuff, so much of our operations. So then you open it up and it's got this kind of, a lot of stuff we opened up had uh, secret catches. So you get plastic catches which uh, would be hidden away and you'd open it and they kind of, the whole thing would snap. It was made to be very weak. So it'd snap open and then um, you, the warranty is defunct because they know you've been in it. So all of these different little things that sort of, you know, secretly hidden away. My absolute bet noir is, of course, the disposable uh, electronic toothbrush, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, which I often, people know me, often I often go on and on about, but actually it's a completely, you know, either the head uh, sort of starts to fail because it's kind of wearing out or the battery goes, but you can't change the battery because you break the catch and therefore you can't close it again. It has a wee uh, regulation sticker on it so you can't put it in the landfill bin on the black bin the recyclers won't take it and yet they're still being made they're still being made and they're still being sold for you can get uh, two for eight quid so basically you get your you know your your whole year's supply for under 20 pounds yeah. and actually for a product that's designed for landfill yeah shocking so the the great recovery project's been going four years coming to an end shortly yeah. uh, listeners can find out more online and you've yeah. got a whole bunch of learnings for people we to download and yes and that will keep be on site for a long time so uh, the great recovery.org.uk um, has we have a YouTube channel which has over 40 resource films on it which are very very informative and really engaging hopefully um, taking uh, people on the journey of all this stuff that we've taken apart we have over five we have well I think we have at least five of our own reports on our site that you can download and uh, we have lots of other resources from other people who are going to sync because we are actually a kind of platform to gather useful information so lots of other people's reports there um, and all our tools will be on there as well so in kind of in terms of how to develop different business models we're looking into so yes all of that will be archived on site the next step for us is to see um, where we can work with specific sectors so you know we're looking into now you know what will happen if uh, you know how do we push for instance the construction sector to start really start thinking about circularity because what we've really understood is that every sector has its own challenges its own timescales and its own kind of uh, legislative barriers and you can even start looking at every product has its own ingredients list its own barriers etc so um, we're hoping to like still be able to offer uh, our services in terms of the kind of tear down workshops that we do and things like that so yeah great well good to catch up with you Sophie and uh, good luck with whatever comes next thank you thank you in the lunchtime lull now. I think a lot of people are going out to the uh, the foyer to get food and, and drinks. Um, there's a very odd looking car over there. It looks like something out of Back to the Future. Let's go and find out what what's going on over here. So this looks like an interesting car. Can you tell us your business and, and well, firstly, your name? Uh, my name's Andre and I'm head of the R&D workshop at River Simple based in Mid Wales. Okay, and so what is this business? What are you doing here? Well, uh, the whole idea is to, to showcase our hydrogen-powered vehicle. Okay. It's, um, it weighs 580 kilos, there's only 14 of us on the team, and uh, the car will run on a tank of hydrogen for 300 miles, equivalent to about 240 miles to a gallon of petrol. Okay, so the, the technology's been around for a while, hasn't it? Um, I mean, yes, fuel cell 
barrels were first used in Wales, would you believe, by a man named Groves, if I recall it correctly, um, way back in the early 1900s. Okay, and so uh, are, what are the other big manufacturers doing around fuel cell technology? They are using fuel cells and hydrogen, but they also have a big battery bank. Whereas we're very light uh, and don't have a big battery bank, their cars weigh between two, two and a half tonnes. We're only at a half a tonne. So how are you, how are you doing that? Um, by just having no transmission as such. Uh, we have about 14 moving parts in wheel motors and we supply um, electricity to those motors. Okay, so so is this, this prototype in front of me, this, is this roadworthy? Can you use this today? It's fully roadworthy. Uh, we've got um, an homologation engineer who's been working closely with us to get it through all the current legislation uh, and we're still working on that and getting it fully road legal uh, as we go forward with future models. And is it easy to use? I mean, as a user, how do you how do you kind of how do you fuel it? It's very easy to use. Um, refueling uh, at the moment the infrastructure is quite poor. There's 12 refueling stations throughout the UK, with a further 12 coming online and more in the future with a government-sponsored consortium um, called H2 Mobility. But uh, as I say, it takes three minutes to fill, and and, it, and it's instant access. Then we can drive it straight away. And it says on your leaflet I've got in front of me that you, you don't sell these. You're gonna this is a subscription model. Yes, we're going to do like a sailor service. So um, we're going to operate in South Wales with a, a pilot scheme of 20 cars and we will lease it for approximately £370 a month. That's our business model at the moment. That will include your hydrogen, your uh, insurance and the servicing. We will look after the car. Okay. But, you, goes wrong. but your commercial model relies on this infrastructure being built, is it? Yes, definitely. Okay. Yeah. So when will that happen? Well, we're hoping that we're going to have 20 cars in place within the next year and um, uh, in production by 2018 approximately. Fantastic. Andre, thank you for joining us on the Better Business Show and uh, good luck with it. Thank you very much. Pleasure. As I say, plenty of uh, seminars and workshops going on here at Resource. Um, just sat in on a brilliant uh, speech by Alex Bellos, who's a, a journalist and, and broadcaster. He's written a few books. Uh, he writes for The Guardian. Uh, but he's a numbers man. He's a maths genius. And uh, he did a, a presentation about the importance of numbers in branding and how numbers influence buying decisions. I'll share some of the links to his books and, and some of the, the things he's written in, the, in today's show notes. But in the meantime, just have a quick listen to, to what Alex had to say earlier. Now, I'm going to finish off now with something from branding and advertising, which can show that the choice of a good number can really influence us actually to like products more and maybe spend more money. I don't know if this is maybe relevant to some people in the room. Now, this is the experiment. It's from the universities of Singapore and Florida. Solus is actually a brand of contact lenses, but these are Solus 36 and Solus 37 are fictitious invented brands of contact lenses. And what they were doing, they were exactly the same. The idea was to test which, what do people prefer. Does it make any difference if you call the brand, one's got 36 and one's got 37? It's kind of interesting to find out. You know, lots of brands have numbers in, in them. You know, WD-40, um, Chanel number seven, is that they did all proper, proper tests, 
you know, do you like this? Would you want to buy it? How much would you pay for it? And what happened was that people much preferred Solus 36 to Solus 37. Okay, even though they knew they're exactly the same, they preferred that so much so that they would pay 10% more for Solus 36. Even though it's exactly the same. And what the academics, the idea that they feel that um, the reason for this is, how do we learn numbers? We go to school, we learn the numbers, we learn the number lines, then we can make, learn our times tables. We do loads and loads of learning by rote, and then loads and loads of exercises. So numbers that appear in times tables, we will have written down and thought about dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of times more than other numbers. You have written down 36 and said the word 36 hundreds if not thousand times more than you've ever written down 37 um, because 37 doesn't appear in any times table apart from 37 times table and no one teaches that. So what the idea is that when you say something a lot it becomes easier to think about it because it's like a kind of old friend and then you misattribute this ease of processing because it's kind of nice ease of processing, it's kind of what uh, we're liking for the product. So if you see something that is easier to process, you like it more. And this can be prodded by numbers. And the second half of this experiment, which they thought vindicated their point of view, which is kind of mind-blowing really, is that they added a slogan. Advertising is all about putting a slogan to persuade us that we want to buy this product even more. The slogan was six colors, six fits. Okay? Then they retested it. And what happened? Normally when you put a slogan on, people like it even more. And it's true. You put six well, six fits, people love it. Most people like so does 36, but people like it even more. Really, really works. But what does it do to so is 37? Does it improve so is 37 slightly? No. It makes people who didn't like it very much in the first place like it even less. And that's because you look at 6636, it's like a nursery rhyme. Everyone knows 6636. You might have hated doing the times table, but you just know 6636 is nice and easy. And you think, oh, I like that, it makes sense. There's a kind of, there's a trustworthiness to that product. It's the numbers are like working without you realizing. The 6637, you could have failed all your math exams, but everyone knows the 66 is there, not 37. You look at it and it's wrong, it's horrible. You just think, no, there's something, something smells about that product, and they don't want it. So this is, you know, the, that you can be given by numbers subconsciously is quite a new area of advertising. It's so much so that, just say you have an ad for a car, and you put the car in front of a house. So you've got the registration number of the car and the house number of the house. If those two numbers are related in some way, you know, it's house number two and it's number four, you are much more predisposed to want to buy that car than if, say, one is seven and the other one is five, with, like, co-prime, no real mathematical record relationship, which is kind of, you wouldn't realize that that is what's going on, but you have this kind of instinct, because numbers are really all about patterns, and we are constantly playing around and sorting out patterns in our brains. So can you, yeah, can you tell us who you are and, and, and what you've been up to? Hi, uh, my name is uh, Brandy Batenburg and I'm from the Netherlands. And um, in the last year I've been entering the sustainability challenge from Sustainable Motion. We won and this idea has been brought further uh, after the sustainability challenge. So what I did was um, I uh, entered the, the water board, so I uh, went there as an intern. I'm now an intern there until summer. 
And this I, is the, the Dutch National the, Water Board, right? Well, yeah, there are several water boards, but this is the largest one in uh, in the Netherlands. Okay. And this water board is now going to implement the idea, and they are looking. Yeah, which which water board is most suitable and which companies should be engaged and well, it's okay. all very interesting. So, yeah. so tell us what the idea is. Okay, so the idea is that now you've got um, you've got wastewater treatment plants which are really filthy, uh, they smell and they don't look nice at all. And they are uh, energy inefficient, so that's, that doesn't work. Um, so what we proposed is a different system and this system uses the bacteria on plant roots and so when you uh, when you actually replace the, the current system with a purifying greenhouse which uses plants you can use the bacteria on the roots of the plant to uh, filter the water to clean the water and uh, make it a more social system uh, as well as a as well as an energy efficient system okay yeah. and this is not just theory this is you've trialed this and in, in practice um, this idea has already been uh, implemented we changed uh, we changed the idea to make it more suitable for the Netherlands so um, this idea started in uh, Hungary um, it is also it is already in practice there but what we can see is that well in Hungary you have a lot of space so there are different aspects that are important there and in the Netherlands we don't have a lot of space and we actually need uh, we need a system that is not only uh, energy efficient but also is good for people and appeals to people sure. and, and, and of course you're continuing a long tradition of Dutch engineer, engineering sort of best practice in water in management water. control yeah. right? so the Netherlands are obviously known for being good in water systems and this is uh, this is one way to improve the sewage water systems which is a really different uh, as we would say, tak van sport, different area of expertise. <laughs> okay. And so how did you uh, come, a, come a across this kind of problem that needed solving? What was it that kind of triggered the idea? Um, the idea proposed, well, the, the problem proposed by the water board was that they wanted to uh, fulfill their, uh, their needs to, uh, yeah, there is this, What's it called? It's, it's, it's like a governmental treaty and, and in, they signed this treaty as being all waterboards from the Netherlands. They are going to reduce their energy, uh, their energy consumption. So we, we got this, this, uh, this question and we, it was so broad, you know, how to save energy at the waterboards. And you can, you can look at dikes and you can look at sewage, but you can look at anything. Um, but this water board specifically was already um, thinking about doing something with the waste, wastewater treatment plants because a lot of these treatment plants are already getting old so they have to be in, in some years they have to be uh, taken down or well something has to be done with it so they knew about this idea in Hungary but they didn't know yet they didn't have a business case yet to bring it into practice so that's uh, why they they needed us actually sure. yeah. so what's the ambition uh, what do you need now to happen for the water boards to take your idea forward what we really need is uh, consent of the of the not only the, the government but um, the 
municipalities. So we're now talking with some municipalities to implement this idea, but they are a bit scared. You know, it's a new idea, and even though it is practiced in Hungary and it's practiced in France, they're not sure yet how it will work out in the Netherlands. Sure, so it's new, it's scary, it's, but it's it's certainly innovative. Uh, what do you call it? What? Well, we call it um, in English. We call it the green routine. But, uh, green routine. Okay. Yeah, the green routine. But it's also known as uh, the purifying greenhouse, and uh, yeah, in Dutch, of course, the zuiverende kas. <laughs> Fantastic. It sounds even better in Dutch. Uh, Brandy, thanks for your time. Thanks for telling us all about it. Yeah. Thank you. So it's coming towards the, the close of the day now, the, a number of the exhibitors are packing away um, and this is the last day of resource, I've been here for the, for the full day and uh, I'm just about to make my way back to the DLR and get back into the centre of London but plenty to take away from this show, so much of circular economy thinking demands new ideas, demands inspiration and insight from other companies and it needs great examples and there's often too much academic theory and too much talk as we've uh, mentioned before on the show about how you put circular economy principles into action um, and companies need to make partnerships and they need to have conversations with other companies and they need to work together so a show like this that brings companies together to network to collaborate to share ideas is absolutely crucial it'd be interesting to know how many initiatives or new products even are sparked because of you know shows like this and maybe that's something for the organizers to think about uh, it'd be fascinating to, to understand uh, how things play out on, on this sort of scale. But key takeaways, I've, I've, as I say, I've only been here for one day, but key takeaways, number one, uh, apparently Scotland is a very good place to be a circular business. There's a very clear focus on remanufacturing in Scotland, I found out today. Uh, according to someone from Zero Waste Scotland who was speaking on stage earlier, the global market for remanufacturing, and we remember, remember we looked at remanufacturing last week, so if you want to know a bit more about that listen to, to episode uh, eight of the Better Business Show when we spoke to Ripe Guides. Um, the global demand for remanufacturing, the global market for remanufacturing is worth $110 billion apparently and Scotland has a 1.1 billion share of that global remanufacturing sector. Uh, apparently 20,000 20, people are employed in remanufacturing in Scotland. So Scotland as a country, uh, which is obviously fairly small, is punching well above its weight uh, and they've just created a great infrastructure, uh, the right conditions, a real focus, support, good policy framework. Um, so I'll, I'll, again I'll put some uh, some links in the notes to today's show but there's plenty to, to learn I think from Scotland. The second thing is and as I mentioned before lots of uh, academic institutions exhibiting here a resource which I think is quite telling. It seems that there is so much academic and theoretical kind of conversation around circular economy principles. Um, uh, which is really dominating proceedings. So you had the Knowledge Transfer Network uh, from the UK, you had Cranfield University here, you had uh, BSI, the Standards Body, so lots of talk about standards and definitions and skills and education um, and really quite thin on the ground in terms of practical examples, which, which will change, but I think it's just a reminder that 
the circular economy and all that goes with it is still very much in its infancy and that's something that Sophie Thomas from the Great Recovery Project mentioned earlier. There is a need for practical examples but they will come uh, just not yet. Having said that, the examples that we that we have found and because we've spoken to a few of these companies uh, today, uh, you know there's some really passionate people working to, to do things differently, to try new ideas uh, and to try and convince big businesses to kind of you know share in that passion and that understanding of what it means to be a resource efficient or circular company uh, and long may that continue yes had some good fun down at excel this week for resource thanks to everyone that uh, had a chat with me uh, during the show and uh, yeah some really interesting stuff going on which uh, hopefully you got a flavor of uh, from this week's episode uh, anyway, I will put, as I said in, earlier in the show, I'll put all the links to all the reference points and the companies that we spoke to in the show notes, so do check those out. Uh, before we go, let's get a quick uh, catch up with Vicky Knowles and find out what's been going on this week. Hi Vix, uh, how's your week been? It's not been too bad, Tom. I've, uh, I've had a few days off this week, so back on, the, back on the old work today. Good for you, good for you. So what you got for us this week? Uh, right. Okay. So um, first up, we've got pineapples. Okay. Pineapples are great to eat, but would you wear them? So eco textile firm Ananas Anum has launched a sustainable non-woven textile called Pinatex. Basically, the fiber is made from waste pineapple leaves, which are the byproduct of the pineapple harvest. That means there's no additional resources like land or water or fertilizers needed to grow it. And it provides additional income for farmers. Best of all, it can be used as a leather alternative, and supposedly it's cheaper too, costing 23 euros per square meter compared to between 25 and 38 euros for conventional leather. And apparently, companies like Puma and Camper are looking into it. Brilliant, love it. I love. I think this is great. Uh, you know, obviously, it's it's not the first time I think we've heard about pineapple being used for different different sort of garments in the in the apparel sector. But and it's you know it's early days as to whether this will be a viable alternative to, to leather. But um, I've been writing a lot about smallholder farmers recently and how they're supported by large-scale businesses at the end of, of, of you know complex supply chains. I think, as you say, you know the most interesting aspect for this is about the potential for farmers to diversify incomes if they're you know able to to grow pineapple trees alongside you know cocoa or or, or coffee or whatever then uh, this could be a real a real sort of game changer brilliant great okay so what else have we got vix yeah definitely so um in other news it's been a bit of a slow start but electric cars are set to reach 35 percent of global new car sales by 2040 at least according to research by bloomberg new energy finance so thanks to continuing reductions in battery prices, EVs will become more economical than gas or diesel cars during the 2020s in most countries. So the study predicts that the lucky battery costs to be well below $120 per kilowatt hour by 2030 and to fall even further after that, while they are forecasting crude oil to cost $70 a barrel or more by 2040. Um, so electric car sales are predicted to hit $41 million by 2040, which, to put it into perspective, that's 90 times more than the sales in 2015 at 462,000. Apparently, wow. over the last few years, the Nissan, uh, the last six years, sorry, the Nissan Leaf has been the best-selling battery electric vehicle, whilst the best-selling plug-in hybrid was the Chevrolet Volt. So it'll be interesting to see how the market changes, which is 
so far been pretty reliant on early adopters and government incentives. So 35% of all new car sales by 2040 will be electric vehicles. It seems like a long way off and it, it almost feels like it needs to be a long way off because, well, I don't know, the uptake in electric vehicles and even hybrid vehicles has been, I guess, fairly slow. Um, Bloomberg, New Energy Finance don't tend to get too much wrong. Um, it just seems that everyone sort of making use of electric vehicles seems so far away because there's just no infrastructure yet but obviously lots of r&d going on within the car manufacturers so you know it's it's going to go in that direction but um it just it feels like a, a long way from where we need to be right now but uh interesting thank you vix um and lastly what else have you got great so in case you missed it last month ford announced that its north american headquarters are now landfill free so they're diverting two hundred forty thousand pounds of waste annually Instead, the food waste is used as compost and the rest is sent to waste to energy facilities. So now in total, 59 Ford facilities are now landfill free, including all Canadian and Mexican manufacturing plants. So that's great for them. And then meanwhile, Miller Coors has announced that all its major breweries now send no waste to landfill. And Unilever has also achieved more than 600 landfill free sites across 70 countries. So pretty amazing feat there. It is, and it doesn't surprise me really, because I think lots of these big companies with multiple premises have, have really sort of worked hard over the last, uh, well, last ten years really to really make their operations as as lean and, and green as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, Unilever, as you mentioned, and I think Unilever is now encouraging a lot of its suppliers to kind of you know, learn from what it's done to to go zero waste uh, and sort of take that down their supply chain. So. Uh, but yeah, great result by Ford and um, yeah, should be applauded. So uh, great. Well, good, uh, good roundup. Thank, thanks, Vix. And uh, we'll see you back next week, won't we? And yes, we will. So that's it for another Better Business show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks very much for tuning in. If you want to go to betterbusiness.show, you'll find all of the reference points and notes from not only this episode, but also the previous eight episodes. So do that if you feel free. Um, you can subscribe via iTunes, so I encourage you to do that. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, where I'll give you regular updates on the show uh, throughout the week. So do that. But until next time, we'll be back again next Monday. So until then, goodbye. Goodbye.